The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. If you're fresh into this Sunday school class, we are in our fourth week walking through this book, one chapter at a time, how to understand and apply the Old Testament. And today we're on chapter 3, a somewhat intimidating subject called text criticism. By criticism, we don't mean to be critical of the text. We don't want to do that. It means to evaluate what the most original reading is when the facts are that we have zero of the original manuscripts that the biblical authors actually gave us. We just have copies of copies of those manuscripts. And the reality is that the men that transcribed, copied the text at times, made mistakes. The text itself doesn't have mistakes, as God gave it to us. That's what we believe. Infallibility is the conviction that everything this book says about faith and practice is sure. Inerrancy is the conviction that all the facts in this book are right, as God gave them to us. But a science was needed called text criticism to help evaluate the fact that we have many manuscripts, fragments, some of which say different things on certain verses. So I don't want you to feel uncomfortable this morning, though you may, but we're going to try to understand why it is that our Bibles sometimes have footnotes that send us to the bottom of the page And they say things like the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't include this word. Or they say, here we're following the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Masoretic text, whatever that is, says something else. Or we're following the Greek translation called the Septuagint at this point, rather than the Hebrew text. Why would they do that? What, what's going on? And so our goal this morning is to try to better understand the science of text criticism. Establishing the passages, the passages original wording. And right off the bat, let's just, be, let's, let's just praise God that He's raised up men and women in every generation who can handle the Word in its original languages. And not only that, those special breed of that group that commit themselves, their entire lives, to assessing the manuscript tradition that God has preserved for us, which has some variation, and they're able to weigh out the different wordings in the manuscript tradition in order to arrive at what, I mean, what we really believe was the original wording that Moses and Isaiah and Zechariah gave us. To that end, let's pray. Father, today is a day to broaden our understanding about your book and how it's come to us. It's not a healthy place to live in ignorance. So as I open up some of the facts and as we look at one specific instance of a text-critical problem, I pray that you would move us to celebrate your kindness in preserving your words in a book and in raising up men, women, who could, with deep conviction that they were handling the very Word of God, act in a very, very careful way. Give us clarity, Lord, and help us. Help me to be a faithful teacher. And as the questions rise... Help me know how to answer them best. 
thank you that you are present now with us. Open your word. Open history of your word to us clearly, I pray, through Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at two areas today. One, I just want to try to define the nature of this science called text criticism. And then we're going to do a little journey in, in text criticism, looking at one specific case study in a very familiar psalm, Psalm 22. So what exactly do we mean by text criticism? Here's some basic facts. And I'll, I'll just note that usually I'm giving you a handout. I wish I had gotten it completed. I even sat up here while the poem was going, wondering, can I get it done? I couldn't get it done. So um, next week I'll try to bring in two handouts so that, because many of you are keeping these for your own record, I'll try to bring in two to catch us up. Number one, for all their care, for all their detail, the scribes who copied and recopied the Hebrew Bible, that is Jesus' Bible, throughout the centuries, they just weren't perfect. The Bible is perfect, the Word is what is inspired, but those that took that inspired Word that was infallible and inerrant were not themselves perfect transcribers in every instance. So, poor memory, impaired judgment, mishearing. Often we know that there was one person up front reading the text, and the scribes were sitting in a room writing down what they heard. What if they heard incorrectly? Or errors of sight. We're going to see, I'm going to throw a manuscript up on the screen, and you're going to see a whole bunch of foreign characters and get a sense for how errors of sight could occur, especially when you don't have a printing press, but when you're using a sheepskin. And there's a bump or there's a a fissure or a discoloration and all of a sudden you arrive at a spot and you're like, huh, wonder what that is. Or you've got a manuscript that you've got a copy and a little bit of candle wax had dripped on it. So you go after it and try to take it off and all of a sudden the manuscript gets ruined and you can't see what's there and yet it's your responsibility to give this word to the people. So what do you have to do? You make the best guess that you can. So the result of these minor errors is that we end up omitting, substituting, or repeating letters or entire words. And so if there's a group in one side of the Middle East working on a set of manuscripts, and there's a group on another side of the Middle East working on another set of manuscripts, and now we today, thousands of years later, come across these manuscripts, what we're finding is some variations minor as they may be, in the manuscript tradition. Now, let me just put this into perspective. If you open up a magazine, whether it be Sports Illustrated or Wall Street Journal, and you see minor typographical errors, it doesn't hinder almost always, your ability to grasp what that text actually says. The meaning is actually very clear. And you're able to, because you know the language well, you're able to identify, that was, that was a mess up. The editor missed that one. And as a whole, that's the kind of errors we're talking about. These are, these are minor mistakes that have no significant bearing on doctrine, no significant bearing on our understanding of truth, Yet they're there nonetheless, and that's why it's one of the steps in the process of interpretation. So interpreters need to sometimes engage in this science called text criticism, identifying a scribal error, and then arguing as they compare that that 
variant reading with another variant reading trying to identify what's the most accurate original reading because we want to hear the word from God. And it's only in the original that God has spoken. So here's our definition. What is text criticism? Text criticism is the discipline of restoring the biblical author's original words by comparing and contrasting the various copies and translations of the Bible. So that's what we're doing. And when you see those footnotes in our English translations that send you down to the bottom of the page and say something like the Dead Sea Scrolls say it this way, but we've followed the Masoretic tradition, that's what they're doing. The, the, all, the translators are, are doing text criticism in order to give you most faithfully the Word of God. Now, certain translations, like the New American Standard, actually didn't do, tra- didn't do text criticism. And they say that right in the beginning of their introduction. They're just going to follow a single manuscript tradition in the Old Testament and not alter it. That manuscript tradition is called the Leningrad Codex, and it becomes the standard Hebrew text that we still use today. When I open up the Hebrew Bible on my shelf, it's only one manuscript from, 1000, from A.D. 1008. In the New Testament, it's a little bit different. The, the, the standard Greek Bible is actually called an eclectic text. Eclectic meaning it's the work of lots of different variants all coming together after the men and women, the text critics, have already done their evaluative um, efforts. So in the Old Testament, it's a little bit different. We have one manuscript that we use as the base, and then we have to look around at all the other variants, and they're often captured for us right in the bottom of that um, of our critical edition, the, the Hebrew Bible edition, in the apparatus. In the New Testament, you've got... There's actually no single manuscript that looks like the text that we use. The scientists, the biblical scholars, have already done all their work and they've packaged for us in one place what they believe is the most original New Testament. So here's some more facts. Number one, while textual errors do exist, they just... Rather than discouraging me, my own engagement with textual criticism has heightened my awe at God's gift of this word and given me increased confidence that when I open up my Bible, I'm looking at the word of God. While textual errors do exist, they don't destroy the Bible's credibility or its message. Most of the biblical text is actually certain. Praise God for that. And where variations do occur among existing copies, the scientists are familiar enough with the manuscripts They know the tendencies of the scribes, and they're able to establish, in almost every instance, with certainty, the original wording of the biblical text. Most modern translations use footnotes to let readers know where the text is difficult or where scribal errors exist. So I invite you, why don't you open up your Bibles to Psalm 22, This is the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Psalm? So we're going to look at Psalm 22 this morning. And specifically, we're going to look at verse 16. But let me catch you up. I'm just going to read this out loud for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, but I find no rest. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm, I'm not a man, scorned by mankind. When they look at me, they despise me, despised by my people. So mankind in general, the nations, and the psalmist's own people, the Israelites. All who seek me mock me. 
They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him, they say. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Mashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Sound familiar yet? I cannot, I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now there's transition. Something's happened. God has shown up. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. For you, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember this moment. They will turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow. Before Him shall bow down. All who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Now, this psalm is loaded with imagery that the New Testament authors pick up and apply right to Jesus' death. And the question before us is this. Is Psalm Psalm 22, verse 16, one of those verses, or isn't it? Here's what the ESV reads. They have pierced my hands and feet. But the Net Bible says this. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet says two very different things. The New English translation. So it was put together by professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. Just solid, conservative school. And we have two different traditions. So the ESV, the the translators followed the same view as most of the other contemporary English translations. And strikingly, even the New American Standard, which says in its preface it's not going to do text criticism, in this instance, rendered, they have pierced my hands and feet. But the Net Bible says that it's talking about lions. And then notice the words in italics. Those words aren't in the Hebrew text, and that's how the Net Bible tells you that. So, as we see in the footnote, how many of you have a footnote in that verse? Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. a footnote right after the words, they have pierced my hands and feet, and it sends you to the bottom of the page. How many have a footnote? Yes? If you don't have one, I encourage you, get a Bible that has them. All right? And that'll probably include a whole bunch of other cross-references that will serve your study. 
But the ESV sends us down to the bottom of the page, and here's what we read. Some Hebrew manuscripts, along with the Septuagint, the Vulgate, and the Syriac, read the text as we've translated it for you. However, most Hebrew manuscripts read, like a lion, my hands and feet. And then the ESV puts in brackets, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. But they are at, that, that's added in. All the Hebrew text says is, like a lion, my hands and feet. And that doesn't make any sense. So here's our question. When we come to Psalm 22 and we look at all the allusions or citations of this particular psalm in the New Testament, just consider verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Jesus speaks when he is put up on the cross and everyone hears him cry out. They wag their heads. That's exactly, Matthew reaches right back to these ver- that verse in verse 7 and applies it, describes that's exactly what they're doing. They're just walking by Jesus while he's on the cross, wagging their heads. The H up on the screen next to the verse That just means that the Hebrew text, as is the case often in the Psalms, the Hebrew text is versed differently. So the Hebrew text counts the title as verse 1. You can see this psalm has a title. So verse 1 in our English Bible is actually verse 2 in the Hebrew text. That's the only difference. Let him deliver him. Matthew 27, 43. Psalm 22.15, my tongue sticks to my mouth. And then we see the references in the New Testament where Jesus says, I thirst. His mouth was dry. An illusion. Psalm 22.18, they divided my garments, how? By lots. They casted lots. That's reached right back to by the New Testament authors to say, it's being fulfilled right now in the midst of Jesus' passion. I will tell to my brothers. That's what Psalm 22 declares right after what would appear to be a great deliverance. I will proclaim to my brothers. In the resurrection narratives, that's the term that's used of the disciples. When Jesus says, I'm going to tell them, and then the book of Hebrews cites this verse and applies it straight to Jesus. He has heard when he cried. That is, God heard me when I cried. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, applies the text right to Christ in the midst of his own groanings and prayers and afflictions. So, within the context, we have every reason to think this might be one more allusion to Jesus' passion that the New Testament authors pull from. But, Some Hebrew manuscripts say something else that would not at all be alluded to. So, the question is, does Psalm 22.16 contain a direct messianic prediction of Christ's crucifixion or not? Now, in the context, we're not questioning whether or not Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. In fact, we're going to even see elsewhere in the Old Testament, it says it explicitly that it would happen. We know that it happened. This is part of the wounding that was done for our transgressions, the bruising that was done for our iniquities. It was part of the chastisement that was placed on Him that brings us peace. So, this is not not a doctrinally significant issue. Was Jesus pierced or wasn't He pierced? No, we we know that He was pierced. All that's at stake here is, does this verse say that? The soldiers had crucified Jesus. By its nature, that's talking about His getting nails into His hands and nails into His feet. These things took place to fulfill the Scriptures. They will look on Him Whom they have pierced. That's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. But it uses a different verb for piercing than we see here. 
So other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then Luke adds, and when he had said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his feet. We know this happened. So, All that is at stake at this moment is, is verse 16 telling us that it happened or not? Now, in the ESV, it mentions a series of sources. It says, some Hebrew manuscripts, the Septuagint, the Vulgate, and the Syriac, all read, they have pierced my hands and my feet. But then it says, most Hebrew manuscripts read something else. So let's let's just take a few minutes to get our hands around the big scope of what are we talking about when we're saying the ancient texts and the ancient versions, these manuscripts and fragment traditions. What are we referring to? Yes. As a psalm of David, it's, it's, it must clearly be prophetic because I don't think David was despised in the same way nor his hands. You know, so, so it has to be a prophetic utterance of David, does it not? Rather than, is there a historical um, validity to the fact that he's writing it as though it were in the first person? That's a great question. What's it, what the question raised is, Isn't there so much detail in here that doesn't appear to have been David's own life that tells us that actually this is a direct prophecy about the Christ? It's very possible that it's a direct prophecy. But there's another kind of prophecy that is very evident in Scripture, and that's called a typological prophecy. And that is where David experiences something in his own life that he very well is even conscious of the fact that as he lives out his life, his own suffering, his own triumph, that he is, his own life is serving as a pointer to what will be endured by Jesus ultimately in the end, by the Messiah. And so either way, it's predictive. So what we often see is God raise up people like the psalmist, it's, it's as if God says, hear me out, this is just an illustration. It's as if God says, I'm going to foretell you for you how the Messiah is going to be burned at the stake. And so, in order to help you feel more appropriately and communicate more accurately the vision that I'm about to give you, I'm going to have you endure putting your hand over a candle. Put it there. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it there. Okay. Now, predict for me the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That would be typological prophecy where the, the, the person, what I mean by type, it's setting a picture for a greater reality. It's anticipating in the life of the psalmist. And scholars aren't in agreement as to whether... Psalm 22 in particular is direct or typological, but Christians all agree it is prophetic. So either way, it is pointing to Jesus. I just want to say another thought for us is that David was usually the one who hunted the lion or the dog that came to attack the sheep. He was a shepherd, yes. And, and he, we know in David's own life, there, he had a lot of enemies. And even portraying the predators, human, enemy, human enemies, as beast-like predators would have been very natural for David to do. So, we can wrestle with which Psalms are direct prophecy, which ones are typological prophecy, at another time, but here the point is 
There's no question this is prophetic. And the New Testament authors identify it as so. And what's at stake then is this particular verse, is it anticipating the specific piercing of his hands and his feet? Now, here's what we're talking about. I've already noted that not one of the original biblical manuscripts still exists. But through the years, there is every evidence that the scribes were so faithful in giving us this book. In fact, when I I give you, I'll I'll put up on the screen a picture of one of our manuscripts and and just note for you some of the features of this text that so clearly identify, wow, these men recognize they were holding the authoritative Word of God. We have ancient manuscripts in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, and Latin, plus thousands of leather and papyrus scroll fragments, some more than 2,000 years old the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've got an old Bible. And what's amazing is not the variation in the witnesses, but what's amazing is how much constancy there is in the witnesses. Two different groups. Texts are specifically the designation given to the manuscripts that are actually in Hebrew, uh, copying from a Hebrew text. The others are called versions. So the English Standard Version, that's a translation. That's what we're talking about with the version. Anything that's not in Hebrew is a version. Anything that is in Hebrew is called a text. And there's three texts and four or five main versions that text critics used to help evaluate the most original reading. The first text is the Masoretic text. Maser in Hebrew means to interpret, or Masar is the tradition. And there was this group of Jews living in Tiberias on the northern shores of the Sea of Southern Shores of the Sea of Galilee that for 500 years committed themselves to the preservation of God's book. And they were called the Masoretes. From 500 to 1,000 A.D., 500 to 1,000, they were working, and the, the manuscripts that they produced were called the Masoretic manuscripts. The oldest of these that is still complete today is dated from 1,008 from A.D. 1008, so only a little over a thousand years ago, is the earliest complete Old Testament that we have on record. It's called the Leningrad Codex. St. Petersburg, Russia used to be called Leningrad, and a codex is the name given to the book. So Leningrad Codex means that's where this ancient book that was dated to 1008 A.D. 1008, where it's kept. It's kept in St. Petersburg, Russia, Leningrad. And it's the most expensive book I have on my shelf. I don't have the actual one. I have what's called a facsimile. It's a copy of it, right? Well, here it is. This is the Leningrad Codex. And let me just draw attention to a few things. So you see all these squiggles. That's biblical Hebrew. And the scribes are very carefully working it. Over here, these little signals, some of them say this particular word, there will be a circle over the tech, over a word, this per, a particular word in the Hebrew text is only used, spelled this way one time in the entire Old Testament. Or it'll say, you see this spelling two times in the entire Old Testament. You're the scribe, you've been working on this, go back and count them. It'll say, at this point in the book, you are exactly halfway through the entire book. There's this many words on this side, this many words on this side. It's your responsibility as the scribe to go back and count and make sure you've got the same number of words on each side of this word. 
And if you have the wrong number, you've got to find your mistake. Other times it'll say, don't touch this. I know it looks strange, but it's exactly what I received. In this instance, right here, ka'are, yaladi, waragli. Like a lion, his hands and his feet. That's what the oldest complete Old Testament reads, like a lion. And what the ESV tells us is that most of the Hebrew manuscripts look just like that. But not all. The Dead Sea Scrolls, first one found in 1947. Yes? The, but the, in, in, the, in the Hebrew tradition, in, in the, what I just read you, piercing is not even part of the text. But my point is that in, in the text that actually reads lion, it never mentions piercing at all. It just says, like a lion, his hand and feet. Like there's no verb to actually connect the two. Like a lion... His hand and feet. And so the, the piercing, we'll, we'll see it in a second when I evaluate these texts, but the piercing only shows up if we read the text a little differently. Dead Sea Scrolls. 1947, we uncover the first of these scrolls in a cave in the desert of Judea. Since that time, we've found 800 scrolls, many of them dating to 2,000 years ago. All of a sudden, this is what happens with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Our Bible, like the manuscript that we're holding in our hand, becomes 1,000 years earlier than what it used to be when all we had was the Leningrad Codex. And what's amazing is how similar the Masoretic text that we have looks like the Dead Sea Scrolls text, which is dated a thousand years earlier. What that tells us is, oh my, were these scribes careful. They weren't perfect, but they were careful. Why? Because they were convinced that they were handling the very Word of God. Manuscripts and fragments in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic... In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find every book in the Old Testament except Esther mentioned. And most scholars don't think that's because Esther wasn't counted as an Old Testament book, but simply, we haven't found it. But every other book is there, recognized as a sacred text already in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And as I've already said, a great number of these... The Hebrew witnesses almost an identical text to the very Leningrad Codex or the Masoretic tradition that we find dating 500 to 1,000 years later. Third text, the Samaritan Pentateuch. You know about the Samaritans, the Samaritan woman, or the parable of the Good Samaritan. So it's this break-off sect, part Jewish and part Assyrian. After the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, the capital of which was Samaria, when they destroyed it in 723, they left the poorest of the poor in the land. So you've got these poor northern kingdom Israelites, and yet, and then they placed Assyrian rulership in that northern sphere. And what we have in time is that those Assyrian rulers began to intermarry with the Jews and you get a break-off group called the Samaritans. And they're alive and well in the days of Jesus and they're actually still alive and well today. And it was because they were mixed blood that the Jews didn't want anything to do with them unless your name was Jesus. 
Now, these Samaritans have said, we have only one Bible and it only includes the first five books. Their Bible is the Samaritan Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and they don't go any further. Now, at times, we do see them having preference for Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which are two large centers in the middle of which was Samaria. And at Ebal and Gerizim, that became the center of their religious identity in contrast to Jerusalem. So they'll make explicit in the Pentateuch when God's talking about, I will place my name there at my central sanctuary. They'll make it explicit. He's talking about our place. But beyond that, apart from small changes in spelling, the Samaritan Pentateuch is a helpful witness to the original Hebrew text. Versions. Ian? It is. I don't remember. The question was, what was the date of the Samaritan Pentateuch? I, I think it arose during the period between the Testaments. Let me ask my brother. Do you remember? Intertestamental. Intertestamental period. So between the Old and the New Testament time period is where we see the, the initial attestation of the Samaritan Pentateuch. Correct. Contemporaneous with the Septuagint. So that's where we're focusing now. When you hear that Septuagint, what you're hearing is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we actually have a number of different recensions of this Greek translation. But what, think about it just like we do our ESV or the NIV. What you have is a group of Jews who are growing up in an, a region where Hebrew isn't spoken, Alexandria, Egypt. And they need the Bible. And so God has graciously allowed His Word to be translated effectively and efficiently into other tongues, and so they are given their Bible in Greek. LXX is the Roman numeral 70, based on the tradition that 72 Jews translated the Pentateuch in 70 days. And... But that's why we use LXX. And it was the Septuagint that became the Bible of the early church. The Christians of the first century were growing up in a world where Greek was the common language, like English is the common language today. And they had their Bible. And Paul and Peter and the author of Hebrews cite it all the time. Their Septuagint. It's the most useful version for establishing the original Hebrew text for three reasons. One, it's the earliest translation. Two, it's well-attested in numerous manuscripts. Three, it contains more significant variant readings than any of the other versions. So, we see the Greek, and what we have to do is do a back-reading. Based on this Greek text, what Hebrew text do we think they were looking at? And is it the same or is it different from the one that's in front of us? And on that basis then, they try to establish potential other readings. And many of the Dead Sea Scrolls actually align with the Septuagint at certain points and will differ from the Masoretic text. Scott? How did I just use it? It's well-attested, meaning it's, it shows up often. It occurs in many different um, manuscripts. So, meaning that we don't have just one Septuagint. We have many Greek, Greek copies at different points in time and from different parts of the world, and we're able to compare them all and and use them to help us evaluate what the most original Hebrew text was. So by variant of readings, more significant variant readings, does that 
mean that the Septuagint, uh, in its many forms, drew from various various Hebrew texts, not from a single manuscript or a single... What, it, what I mean by it, it has the most significant variant readings, meaning that when we look at the Greek text, among all the other versions, we see potential evidence of, of a different Hebrew mother text that's different from our standard Hebrew text. And so it raises questions. And up until the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was often just, well, we've got the Masoretic tradition from AD 1000, and we've got Septuagint manuscript traditions from 2nd, 3rd, 4th century AD, copies of these, even though the original Septuagint is dated um, from 250 BC to, 130, to AD 135, in that window, the copies that we have um, of the various manuscripts um, are later than that. So, but the most significant differences from the Hebrew text we have among all the versions come in the Septuagint. We do. So that's, that is an entire added field. There's some text critics that just devote themselves to trying to establish the most ancient Greek text from which then we can work. It's called the Old Greek is what they're seeking to establish, from which we can then establish the more original Hebrew text. Ian? Um, there is solid evidence when we're looking at, just, just take um, the Sermon on the Mount and you look at the Greek text and you see the care at which words are put together that have a ring in Greek that would not be a ringing in Aramaic or in Hebrew it strongly suggests that that's the work not of the disciples working on Jesus' words to make them have a poetic song, but rather it was Jesus himself. Um, And here I'm following um, a brand new book, Can We Trust the Gospels, published by Crossway. And I encourage you to check it out. Just came out this year, or very end of 2018. um, And it's it identifies the likelihood that Jesus spoke Greek. So the two questions were, is there still work happening on the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes, a lot of work. Um, And yet, uh, in the last 60 years, there has been an entire massive critical edition of the Dead Sea Scrolls created um, with scroll after scroll, fragment after fragment, carefully analyzed and evaluated. Um, with respect to the words and their meaning, that does bear, bear significance on the questions of text criticism, but I'll handle that when we get to word studies. Next version, the Targum. Targum is an Aramaic word meaning translation or interpretation, and the Targums are the Aramaic translations or paraphrases of the Old Testament. And in Mesopotamia, Babylon and Assyria Assyria and Babylon, where Israel was sent 
into exile, Aramaic was the mother tongue. It was the dominant language. And there were, even after Greek language and culture filled the ancient world, Aramaic was still a very utilized language in certain parts of the world. And so the Targums can be a means for getting us back. Next would be the Syriac Peshitta. Peshitta is a Syriac term meaning simple or straightforward. It's the translation, the Syriac translation of the Old Testament. Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic with a different script. And um, so like, it's, it's also the, the, the Peshitta is the standard Bible for the Syrian church to this day. Um, and finally, it's the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. Latin meaning common or popular. The standard Bible of the Western Church, the Old Testament portion, includes Jerome's translation from the Hebrew with the help of the Septuagint. Now they're playing music over there. Let me assess Psalm 22 for us. We've gotten a glimpse of the various texts and versions. I want us to now go in and see what, what it says, what the ESV is telling us, and then give clarity to why I think the ESV did a good job, the ESV team did a good job in making their decision on this instance. So here's the guiding principle of textual criticism. The most original reading, way back here, the most original reading is the one that can be used to explain the rise of all the other little mistakes here and there. So the most original is the one that can be used to give rise to all others. So here was what we saw in the ESV. They have pierced my hands and feet. Some Hebrew manuscripts, that is Dead Sea Scrolls, Septuagint, Vulgate, and the Syriac all read this, whereas the Hebrew in the Leningrad Codex and other manuscripts reads like a lion, my hands and feet. So the first step in textual criticism for these scholars who are doing this kind of work is to just understand all the data that are out there. All the witnesses in the texts and the versions. And so what do we find? We find, first of all, in the Masoretic text, the standard Hebrew Old Testament that we use today, dated from AD 1008, what we see is ka'ari yadai waraglai. As a lion, it's the preposition kaf, like, like a lion, hands, my hands, and my feet. Like a lion, my hands and my feet. Whereas in cave four, in Qumran, 4Q, in the Psalter manuscripts, specifically from a fragment K4, in Qumran, the Psalter fragment manuscript, what we find is no Aleph there. No letter that signals lion. Instead, it just reads Karu. Karu. They pierced or gouged or dug his hands or my hands and my feet. So, to simply say, like a lion, my hands and my feet, the Net Bible in their notes that follows this, they say it's grammatically awkward. And it is, but it's more than that. It makes no sense. Like a lion, my hands and my feet, it, I, I can't make sense of it. Nor can most scholars. It, you, you can't just add the verb in. There's no verb to be drawn from, even in the context, if it was just intentionally missing. Like a lion, my hands and my feet. And so it has suggested to some that we might actually have here Jews... We have a handful of examples of this in our, in our Old Testaments where the Jews 
with an anti-Christian bias, didn't want this to be so explicit, pointing to crucifixion. The Septuagint follows the ESV reading. The, so, in that instance, like a lion encircles my hands and feet? How is it related to my hands and feet? That would be the question. Um, but this is how text criticism works. You've got to wrestle with those kinds of questions. So, in the Hebrew text, what... In the Dead Sea Scroll, you're actually looking at a verb. Rather than a preposition like a lion, it doesn't have that olive in there. It just reads, it just reads, karu. And so it's from the verb kara, and elsewhere it's used for digging wells, digging pits, digging cisterns. And it even is used for the opening of an ear in order to hear God, used metaphorically. So it, it, it seems like it would be a very legitimate verb to pick if it means to put a hole in one's hands and put a hole in one's feet. It's not the same verb as is used in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it reads, When they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And that's what's cited in John chapter 19. But nevertheless, it seems like a very legitimate reading. That's external evidence. Internal evidence is this. We've already seen that this psalm is cited many times by New Testament authors. Number two, this potential bias of certain Jewish scribes, consciously or unconsciously, against Christianity could have moved them to add an aleph and change the wording, even though it makes little sense to me. It's possible. But when you add lion into that text, I think you break what appears to be an intentional parallelism that is set up in the text. So, notice in verse 12, bulls surround me. Then a roaring lion is coming after me, verse 13. And then verse 16, dogs encompass me. And then evildoers encircle me. There's four groups. Then you come down to verse 20, and it goes in direct opposite order. You start out with a sword, parallel to the enemies, then a dog, then a lion, and then the horns of a wild ox. Suggesting that he's, he's moved in, and then he moves back out. But if you put lion in there, the parallelism does break down. The internal evidence, both in the fact that Psalm 22 is quoted often, and in that structure, suggests to me very likely that we shouldn't be reading lion at that point in the passage. So, Psalm 22, 16, if read this way, would stand alongside Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that uses a different verb for pierced. And it would be seen as supplying a direct prediction of how Jesus would die through crucifixion. Now, you don't need this text in order to hold to that. 
Like most text-critical issues, no major doctrine is at stake. Even if we were to read and figure out somehow that this does mean the lion in some way encircled or grabbed on his hands and his feet, okay. Crucifixion isn't explicit in Psalm 22. But it does appear to be explicit in Isaiah 53, in Zechariah chapter 12, and then the New Testament authors run that way. Text criticism is usually, almost, I mean almost always, addresses issues like this, where we're having to think and wrestle. We're comparing manuscript traditions. Often we're actually looking within the text itself, looking to see how words could have been confused. I didn't bring any of those up. Um, But almost always, it's not a big deal. It does alter a particular reading of a verse, but it doesn't alter our view of God or even the ultimate message of a psalm or of a book. One second. Yes. In my book, I have a, f- a footnote that includes about 20 of them. Yes. We know that there was lots of discussion going on about what the Old Testament text meant. Lots of discussion in the days of Jesus. And I'm confident they would have been reflecting on even this verse and how it relates. I can see, I mean, if I can see that even though the citation is of Zechariah 12, that on the mind of the disciples would have also been Psalm 22, and that they would have been talking about it as a support text for the identity of Jesus. I can see them doing that. Um, And we see many evidences of that kind of reflection. Could be, could be. The biggest challenges of large chunks of Scripture occur in the books of Samuel and Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, for example, in the Septuagint is eight chapters shorter than it is in the Hebrew text. All eight of those chapters, though, and it's also the Septuagint is also in a different order. All eight of those chapters, though, the content is found in other places in the Septuagint. There's a lot of repetition in Jeremiah. And for ex- and another element with Jeremiah, within the book itself, we're told that there's at least three versions of Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes his word down in a book, and then he sends it with his scribe up to Babylon during the exile, while Jeremiah, and it's telling us he's still in Jerusalem, in the book itself. So there's And then Jeremiah gets sent off to Egypt at the end of his life. Certainly he would have had his own copy of the book. And that's where the Septuagint actually grew. So even though we have some examples of books that are um, major tradition, like in the Septuagint of Jeremiah, um, where it seems significantly different, substantially, in substance, it's actually not that different. And we see witness within the Bible itself of how Jeremiah could have been the author of the different versions that we have, some short and some long. Most of the Bible doesn't have that issue. Um, One of my professors 
during seminary told me of a story that he taught in a Sunday school class here in the U.S., and then he, the next week, flew to England and was worshiping with the congregation and was asked if he would teach Sunday school that day on the spot. So he thought, I'll teach the lesson I taught last week. And he went and he took their, the, whatever English Bible, the common English Bible or whatever it was that was in the pew, and he took that with them so that he'd have the same Bible that they were using. And he got in there and he started to preach out of 1 Samuel, or he opened up his Sunday school class to teach out of 1 Samuel, and he couldn't find the paragraph in that common English Bible that he had taught from the previous week in America. And it was because the translation committee of that different translation thought it's not it's secondary, not primary. They made a different decision than the other translation committee, and he couldn't even teach, teach the, the very paragraph he had planned to teach when he opened the Bible. That, that's very rare, very, very rare, but it does happen. I don't know which verse you're referring to. Uh, Psalm uh, 16. In 16. Dogs encompass me. Oh, a company of evildoers. Okay, yeah. So it does, in the, ES, in the uh, Masoretic text, it does talk about this group. It would be a very general pointer, but most people who die in legal settings do have a, a counsel at work, but it, but it would be a general further pointer. The lions, the enemies here, the beasts seem to be used figuratively for people. That the enemies are not the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, but they're actually actual people. Um, and so they're using that, that type of image. No, it, it, yeah, the, the image would be um, the, the mention of the evildoers as the very last of the statements, I think, gives clarity to the nature of the enemy. Our time is up. May the Lord bless you. See you next week, Lord willing. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.